We had some technical difficulties. So <laughs> I'm going to be using this now. I usually stay in one place anyway, so hopefully it won't be too bad. Um, so we're going to be talking about fighting truth decay, defending God's word. And um, before I get started, how many of you have been to the Ark Encounter yet? Okay, a couple of you, a few of you. Um, so uh, that's another amazing outreach that we have. Um, that's loaded, located in Williamstown, Kentucky. Now, I don't know how far that is from here. Huh? Okay, okay, I was going to say, because from where I live, it's about an hour and 15 minutes, um, but from here, it actually wouldn't be that, it wouldn't be too far. So um, anyway, so I'm going to show you a short video of the Ark Encounter. There should be sound. chance to come out. I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, it's it's really exciting because we keep adding new things all the time. Um, we ha- now we'll have the East Village and the West Village, um, which kind of lead you into the area of the Ark. Um, we keep expanding our petting zoo area there. Um, if you're into zip lining, they have they're the largest zip lines in the Midwest. Um, there at the Ark, so lots of fun and exciting things to do. So I hope that you'll be able to visit us um, sometime this sun- summer. So in this presentation, I want to take kind of, I know we kind of went through the seven C's and the talk about Eve, but I want to talk a little bit more about um, each of those seven C's to help us get a better sort of big picture view of the Bible and to really understand the foundational importance of, the, of Genesis, which is sort of those first four C's, to the rest of Scripture, the last three, and specifically to um, the gospel itself. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on those first four C's. And I'm going to discuss some common questions and objections, I guess, that people have in believing that Genesis really does present true history. Now, obviously, we cannot go through everything in the amount of time we have, but I'm going to go to some of those more common questions, so to speak, and show you how, why those are important to answer and how they are foundational to the gospel. So probably uh, many of you have heard questions like the following. Um, what about the dinosaurs? Like, where does that fit into the Bible? Uh, why is there death and suffering in the world? How old really is the earth and universe? Was the ark really big enough for all those animals? Um, what about radiometric dating that shows the earth is billions of years old? Uh, what about fossils? Um, did evolution really occur over millions of years? Um, was there really a global flood? And does a day really mean 24 hours in Genesis 1? And starting with the Bible, what I love about it is we can find answers to all of these questions, and we can also see that those answers are confirmed 
by science. Um, and that's one of the things I love about being a scientist and being a Christian um, is that what I see in the world is what I expect to see um, based on God's word and um, based on starting with that. And so a lot of people will say, well, science um, has disproved the Bible, right? Um, or maybe you've thought, well, it's, you know, it's really a battle of sorting out different evidences. There's evidence for evolution. There's evidence for creation. Whoever has the most and whoever sounds the best and the most convincing, that's what we should believe. Um, but really, we need to realize that the battle is over the same stuff. Um, we're actually looking at the same evidence. We're looking at the same DNA, the same rocks, and the same fossils. Um, when I was in graduate, so my, somebody was asking me um, during the break, my PH, I actually have a PhD in molecular genetics from Ohio State um, University. So I'm a geneticist by training. And so I was looking at the same DNA that an evolutionist was. Okay, There's no difference. We're all looking at the same things. The geologists look at the same rocks um, and the same fossils. Um, so it's really not a battle over evidence, okay? It really isn't, because it's, we all have the same world that we're looking at. Um, evidence doesn't speak for itself, right? People will say that, but it doesn't. We speak for it, okay? Rocks can't talk, DNA can't talk, and fossils can't talk last time I checked. Um, so it's us, okay? We're speaking for them. And so our starting points when we look at those things really do matter. Um, do we start with man's words for looking at the past, the idea of evolution and billions of years, or do we decide that man or that God decides truth, that he has told us the truth um, about the past? Because none of us has a time machine. We can't go back in the past and see how these things have come to be in the present. So our starting points are really important for determining how we look at the evidence that we have right now and the conclusions that we then draw about the past. Now, a lot of people will say to me, yeah, but come on, science is objective. I'll say, I agree. The problem is scientists aren't, okay? They're all subjective. They all have a point of view. They all have a worldview when they look um, at the evidence. And really, there's two different types of science or evidence when we talk about this because that's important, and it's important to define because most people, when they use the word science, are talking about, or evidence, are talking about experimental or observational science. That's science that happens in the here and now, okay? That's what gives us technology and medicine. Um, it's what scientists do in the lab every day. It's testable, it's observable, and it's repeatable. So as a scientist, you develop a hypothesis, you do experiments, do they support or not support it? And then you move on, and you may have to change your hypothesis or whatever. So I worked alongside evolutionists with no problem. When it came to my graduate work, we were studying bone cells, and, you know, we see. Does, what does this do? What doesn't it do? How can we understand this? All right, that's very different um, from the science of the past, which creation and evolution both fall into that category. They're historical science. They're one-time events that are not observable, they're not testable, and they're not repeatable, okay? Because it's history, right? It's not, in, in this case, it's not going to repeat itself. Um, and so, so we can't evaluate it quite in the same way. It's very worldview dependent. A creationist and an evolutionist will approach it very differently because they have different ways of knowing about the past. Um, do we trust what man thinks outside, apart from God, or we trust what God has said in his word um, is really the issue that we have with that. So what we're going to see, and what I love about, like I say, about being a creation scientist, is that when we look at the science we have today, observational science, it's confirmed and it's consistent with God's word and what it tells us about the past, and it is inconsistent and does not confirm that evolution in millions of years um, is true. And 
that's what I say I, I love about Christianity is that it is a um, reasonable faith. It is a reasoned faith. It's not a blind faith. If everything I saw in the world was different from what God said in his word, I would not believe his word. I mean, why would I? Reality would look very different. So there would be no point in believing it. But what I see actually confirms and is consistent with what's in his word. So we have a reasoned faith. It's actually the evolutionists that have a blind faith because what they see is not consistent with what they believe um, about the path. So we're going to go through the seven C's and we're going to look at the answers to some of those questions I posed a little bit earlier. And we're going to see how both we can get answers from the Bible, but also how science confirms those answers and we have that reasoned faith. So the very first C that we're going to look at um, is creation. And the language is very clear in Genesis that God created in six 24-hour days. So day one, he created the earth, the light, but not the sun, okay, space and time. And day two, he separated the sea from the sky. Day three, we have land, um, land appearing and the plants. Day four, the sun, the moon, the stars, and every bright object, so planets, all of those kinds of things. Flying and swimming creatures on day five. And then on day six, land animals and obviously Adam and Eve. And then on day seven, God rested. Now, this is one of the biggest debates when it comes to Genesis, right? What does the word day mean in Genesis 1? Now, here's the thing. Day is used 2,301 times in the Old Testament. Why do we only question Genesis? <laughs> um, why is that the only one where people say, well, maybe it doesn't really mean what, we, what it seems to mean. Um, and the word, the Hebrew word for uh, day is yom, Y-O-M. And so that's why you see that there. So again, why do we question Genesis? Nobody thinks that Joshua, right, went around Jericho like 7,000 years, right? No one thinks those days meant longer than a week, okay? Um, Jonah and the great fish, no one thinks he was in the fish for like 3,000 years or 3 million years, right? No one questions that he was in the fish for three days. Um, now, we all know, though, that depending on context, the word day can have different meanings. It could be a portion of a day, like I went to school and, you know, during the day, okay? It could be just the daylight portion. Um, it could be back in my father's day, right? Meaning a while ago, uh, a longer period of time. So you have to look at context. Context is really important. And so let's look at the way that the word day is used outside of Genesis 1 when they're trying to mean a 24-hour day, okay? In the Old Testament. So, in, um, it is used 410 times, the word day, with a number, like one or first or something like that. And that means an ordinary day, outside of Genesis 1. Evening and morning, when they're used with day, refer to a 24-hour day. Evening or morning, with, or sorry, without day, and then with day, which is 23 times, that means an ordinary day. And if you use the word night with day, it means an ordinary day. Okay, so these are other examples. Um, again, it's like what, about 500 times, over 500 times throughout the Old Testament where the word day is, and it means a 24-hour day. And this is how we know from the context. Day plus number, evening and morning without day, evening and morning with day, all of that. Now, how is it used in Genesis chapter 1? Because that should give us an idea for what it means in Genesis 1. Well, we see the word night. And then we see evening and morning and a number and the word day, okay? And we see that all, we see that just repeat itself all throughout the six days of creation, okay? And so we know from the context and other parts of scripture, okay, we know that when the day, where day is used with morning, with evening, with night, and with a number, 
it means a 24-hour day, okay? Any, any or all of those combinations mean a 24-hour day. So we also get our basis for a week from that, right? For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. So God actually wrote on stone <laughs> that he created in six days, okay? It is our basis for a week. You do not get a week from anywhere else, right? I mean, there's no, a year, a month you get from certain astronomical things, but not a week. A week is based solely on scripture. Um, And so those days um, cannot and do not represent longer periods of time. They just can't. That's not the context in which they're given. Um, There are other Hebrew Hebrew words that God could have used if he wanted to convey long periods of time, but he didn't use those. And in the context in which the word day is used, it's referring to a 24-hour day. So how long ago did those 24-hour days, those six 24-hour days or seven for the whole week, how long ago did they occur? Now, some will say, well, they believe God created in six 24-hour days, but they think there were millions and billions of years before that time period. But what does Scripture say? What does Jesus say? In Mark 10, 6, Jesus says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He didn't say millions and billions of years after the beginning, right? So there's no long period of time inferred between which God started creating and which Adam and Eve were created, okay? In order for them to have been from the beginning, they had to be pretty close, um, which was six days. So how long ago did it actually take place? And so you have to look at genealogies, which are always really fun to read, um, with a bunch of names you can't really pronounce, but those are kind of the family trees. And if you look at those from Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11, um, and a little bit of 12, they're are a lot of years given there when sons died and when they were born and and people died. And so we know this math. I'm not a big math fan, but even I can handle this because it's just simple addition. Okay. So from Adam to Abraham, we get approximately 2000 years or a little over that. So when we talk about the age or the earth of the earth and universe, we know from Adam to Abraham was 2000 years. There's other genealogies that help us know from Abraham to Jesus, there was 2000 years. And then we know from Jesus to today, there's obviously 2000 years. So that gives us a grand total of 6,000 years. Okay. It's not, and cannot be millions and billions of years. Now, That's the biblical evidence. So what's the scientific evidence? Does that support that? And because the Bible is true, then we should expect science to confirm that. And one of the things that I always think is really interesting is that there is a big difference. And I don't think people stop to think about this a lot of times. But there's a big difference between the evolutionary sequence of how things appeared and the biblical sequence of how things appeared or were created. So, for example, and this is just a small sample... Um, with the idea of millions of years of, of an evolution, you have death before man, right? You get millions of years of death and suffering and disease and dying before mankind, mankind comes into existence. But with creation, you have death after man, right? Because like we talked about before, because of man's choice to sin, death entered this world. Um, with evolution, you have sun before plants because um, those are, the sun is some of the first, one of the first things formed, even before the earth. And then, but with creation, think about it. Plants were on day three, but the sun was on day four. Um, with evolution, you have dinosaurs before birds because birds are modern-day dinosaurs, okay? Did you know, this, like, blows me away. Birds are now in the class reptilia. They're no longer in the class aves because birds are believed to be modern-day dinosaurs. Birds are reptiles, in other words. Okay. Um, that's a little fun fact. That. That's just craziness <laughs> oh, for so many reasons, but that's, 
that's the belief. It's actually changed our classification system because of the evolutionary belief. But in creation, birds are on day five, and dinosaurs would have been on day six because they're land animals. Um, again, with evolution, you have the sun before the earth. With creation, you have the earth before the sun. And with um, evolution, you have land animals before whales because land animals supposedly climb back into the ocean to become whales. Um, but with biblical creation, you have whales before land animals because whales are on day five and an land animals are on day six. That's just a small sampling. Most of the lists I see are about this long, okay? Because this sequence doesn't line up. I mean, if you're trying to synthesize the two, like, oh, I want to believe in evolution and the Bible, it doesn't work. Their sequence of origin is completely different from the biblical sequence um, all the way, so to speak. Now, I want to talk about some radiometric um, dating methods, which is not necessarily an easy topic because I am not a geologist. Um, but we do have to realize that all radiometric dating methods make certain assumptions about the past in order to do the calculation. Um, so, for example... They assume radioactive decay rates have always been constant, but we do not know that. Um, and there's a lot of indications that they have not been constant over time. And so the problem with those assumptions is they're not starting with God's word is true. They're starting with their own ideas to figure those out and then come to a conclusion. Uh, so... Some, we can really show that this dating is off, okay, many, many times. And one of my favorite examples is to look at potassium-argon dating for certain rocks. Now, here's the deal. When a volcanic eruption occurs, okay, and rocks are formed as a result of that, right? We all know that. And the radiometric clock starts once the rock has formed and has cooled, okay? And so then the, then the clock starts. Now, Mount St. Helens in Washington, we just passed the anniversary of that, actually. I think it's been like 37, 38 years ago. I remember watching it on TV. Nearly everyone, not quite everyone in this room, can probably remember watching that. Okay? It was a pretty, pretty major event. Um, but when they date rocks that were formed as a result of that eruption, they date up to 2.8 million years old. Now, that's a problem because none of us in this room are 2.8 million years old. Okay? Um, we saw it erupt. We know the rocks are only a few decades old, but yet they date to being really old. So there's a problem with the radiometric dating methods. You can see other uh, volcanic eruptions up there, and they can get the dates are really off. Um, so I always say, why would you trust radiometric dating? If you can't trust it for a rock you know the age of, why would you trust it for a rock you don't know the age of? Um, it's really, it can be really challenging. So obviously... There's problems in those assumptions that they're using about the past because they don't line up, even when we date modern-day things, so to speak. And in fact, a lot of, there's a lot of other ways to date the Earth, not just using radiometric dating. And all of them give, or 90% of them, I should say, give process, of these processes, give an age less than billions of years old for the Earth. You don't really hear about them um, because people don't want you to believe that, um, but it's true. And so in, even with the 10%, if the 10% that don't, it's important to remember they're all based on assumptions about the past, okay, all of them. Now, I want to take a look at another example. This is one of my personal favorites, not because I necessarily like diamonds, but because I just think it's neat. Uh, so carbon-14 has been found in diamonds, okay? Diamonds are pure carbon, right? And so um, that's just amazing because according to other dating methods for diamonds, potassium, or what they call potassium-argon dating of the layers surrounding um, diamonds, okay, the rock layers that diamonds are found in, that dating would say that those rock layers are one to two billion years old. But here's the deal. Carbon-14 is undetectable after 80,000 years. 
Okay, you can't, in other words, if the diamonds are really one to two billion years old, if they match the layers around them, they should be no carbon-14 in these things, none. And yet, they find it. <laughs> um, that's a problem. That's a big problem um, for evolutionists because you should not have young diamonds in rocks that are supposedly billions of years old. So what it indicates is that, indeed, the rocks are a lot younger than what they think they are, um, just like the diamonds are as well. They cannot be billions of years old. They have to be um, really fairly young. And so this and many other examples show that there's lots of problems um, with radiometric dating methods, and thus there's really no scientific basis for an Earth that is millions and billions of years old. In fact, the evidence flies in the face of it, so to speak. It goes against it. The Bible makes it clear that the Earth is only thousands of years old, and what we see in science absolutely is consistent with that. Now, I want to address some of the questions of how and what God actually um, created. So um, God said right? Over and over and over again. This was not the slow evolution of living things from some sort of common ancestor, from simple cells to complex animal life and to human life, um, but rather by the spoken command of God um, on their respective days. And he made um, organisms uh, after their kind, right? After his kind. And so the inference is that they're to reproduce according to that kind. We don't have one kind of animal becoming another kind of animal, okay? We don't have dinosaurs becoming birds, okay? Or dogs becoming cats or whales becoming humans, okay? That doesn't happen, okay? Um, they're created according to their kind. Now, what is a kind, though? Because um, in modern, modern creation, scientists think that a kind is probably at the family level. So if you remember from biology, okay, Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, because I've only said it a gazillion times uh, as a biologist, so that's how I know it. Um, so family is usually where we say a kind is, because members of a family can normally breed with one another and form offspring, okay? So one example would be the dog family, Canidae, okay? All do dogs can breed with one another and form offspring. Um, the same is true for uh, Felidae, cats. And, and, both and what's interesting about this is that both evolutionists and creationists would agree that all of the cats we have today come from a common ancestral cat, okay? The only difference is the time frame, okay? That's the only difference. We would say a few thousand years. They would say billions of years, okay? So that, those are the only two differences. All dogs are related. I don't care if you're talking foxes, coyotes, your domestic dogs. It doesn't matter. Um, they're all related. Same with cats. Little tabby at home is related to the big lion, okay? Now, you think, they can't breed and form offspring. True. But there are ways to link those, okay? So they, the, this can breed with this, which forms this. This can breed with this, which forms that. And you can keep going down, okay, um, until you get to the domestic cat level. So there are ways that all of those are linked. Um, one of the thing, cool things that we have at the Creation Museum is we have a Zorse and a Zonkey, okay? So a Zorse is a horse and zebra mix, right? One parent was a horse, one parent was a zebra. The Zonkey one parent was a donkey and one parent was a zebra. Now, how is that possible? Because horses and zebras and donkeys are all the horse kind, and they can breed with one another and form offspring. And that's, and that's definitely the inference from Scripture. They were to multiply, build the earth, okay? They have to be able to reproduce to do that. Now, today, you know, we have like, I think there's like four to 500 different dog breeds, okay, that are, but they're all Canis lupus. They're all the same genus and the same species, 
even. They're not even a little poodle up to your Great Dane are the same species, which is pretty amazing to think about. But they're just different breeds. And so what's cool about that is, is that most of these dog breeds have come about in the last 500 years. So think about this. You got two dogs on the ark, okay? They come off and we get the 500 breeds that we have today, plus all the wild species, okay? How is that possible? Well, easy. You can, there's an amazing genetic diversity created in these organisms. If we've been able to come up with all these dog breeds in 500 years, imagine what you can do with a few thousand years, okay? Since the ark. That's actually a significant period of time in which there can be lots of that diversity selected for in different ways, and you get all the different um, organisms that we have. Um, So it's pretty amazing. I'm excited to see. It'll be interesting to see what new dog breeds um, come about in the future. I don't think we've explored it all yet. Uh, There's a lot of genetic diversity that God put in these organisms. Um, So... uh, and again, so we're not talking about one kind of animal becoming a different kind of animal. That is evolution. Dinosaurs to birds or whales to mammals or whatever, whales to human. But we're talking about dogs to dogs, right, and cats to cats, right? Variation within a kind, not one kind becoming another kind. And science confirms that. Um, we don't observe that. Even given enough time, you know, can you imagine a dinosaur is going to have to get a lot of new stuff to become a bird, Right? feathers, okay, hollow bones, a completely different breathing system. Um, You know, that's just to name a few, okay? Things, flight, the ability to fly. So there's lots of things that have to happen. There's no way to do that. As a geneticist, um, I study this a lot. And there's just no genetic mechanism by which you can add information to do that kind of thing. You have to add it at the DNA level. It's got to be encoded there. There's just no way to do that. There's no mechanism for that. And I've not seen one. Um, and I don't believe I ever will because we know what changes in DNA do. They take away, they degrade, they harm, they don't add to and make something better. And so I always tell the evolutionists, you can have all the time you want. I'll give you trillions of years. It won't help your case (laughs) because you don't have a way to get from one kind to another kind. It it all comes down to genetics. Um, you have to have a genetic mechanism to, you have to have a way to encode that information in the DNA and you don't have a way to do it. So time doesn't help you. Now, speaking of animals, because um, the one type of animal that we get asked the most about at Answers in Genesis is this one, okay? So people will say, how do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? And my answer always is, you don't, okay? But here is my answer. You don't do that, but you use the Bible to explain dinosaurs, okay? Um, so we do know that dinosaurs were land animals that God created on day six because we read about that. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. They would be the beast of the earth. They would be a land animal. We dig them up. We see the fossils. We can reassemble them. We know what they look like, okay, relatively speaking. We may not know colors and some of that kind of stuff, but we know they were real animals at one time. And we even see what appears to be a description of a dinosaur in Job. And keep in mind, the book of Job was probably written shortly after the flood. It is one of the oldest books of the Bible. And so it says, look now at the behemoth, okay, which I made along with you. He has strength in his hips, power in his stomach muscle. He moves his tail like a cedar. Okay, a cedar tree is huge. Okay, if it's moving its tail like a cedar, this is one big animal. Now, a lot of study Bibles will say this is probably referring to a rhinoceros or an elephant. Have you seen a tail on a rhinoceros and an elephant? 
They're like this big. Okay, rhinos are like this big. Elephants are like this big. This is not a cedar tree, okay? This is not talking about an elephant or a rhinoceros. Um, he has bones like beams of bronze, rib, bronze, ribs like bars of iron. Um, this is probably a sauropod, okay? One of the largest dinosaurs to ever live on earth. It says he eats grass like an ox, so that's a vegetarian dinosaur, and that would definitely be what um, a sauropod, sauropods were vegetarian. And in fact, originally, everything was vegetarian, okay? They all ate grass, fruits, and veggies, including the dinosaurs, right? Because we see that clear in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks to the animals and he speaks to Adam and Eve, and then he speaks to the animals, the beast of the earth, the bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. Now, that's hard for people to grasp, right? The concept that everything was originally vegetarian because, let's face it, things look designed to eat meat, okay? They've got really big, sharp teeth. T-Rex teeth are like six inches long, okay? They're huge. Um, but according to Genesis, everything was originally vegetarian, and so what we're actually observing is God, a loving God who designed animals to eat um, in this way so they could eat what he had provided. Have you ever tried to open, cut up a watermelon with a spoon? Okay. It's not going to be real effective. Okay, I know. I cut one up yesterday. You need something sharp, right? You need a sharp knife. Well, these animals would need that to be able to get into these types of fruits and veggies. It's it's not easy with something that's dull, okay? So that was important. After the fall, things changed. They were used to rip open meat. They were used for things they weren't originally designed for. And because remember, originally everything was very good. There was no carnivory. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no suffering. Um, but something changed. And we talked about that before when we come to the second C, which is corruption. And um, as I said before, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we've already talked about this in detail, but... The Lord told them, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God said, if you sin, that's disobedience to God, you will be punished. You will certainly, basically it's saying you will certainly die. Not die immediately, but begin the process of dying. And what happened? We know. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, so you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's when the world became a horrible place. That's when death and suffering entered this world through man's actions as a punishment for sin. And we need to realize that because, again, in the evolutionary scheme of things, death came long before man. Right? Death is how you get progress. It's survival of the fittest to get from some sort of single-celled organism up to mankind today and every other living thing. Death comes before sin in an evolutionary um, view. And that's the problem with, that should ring a huge red theological bell, okay? Huge red flag, right? Because there's a major problem with that if we have death before sin instead of death being a punishment for sin. And the New Testament makes that clear. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. It's Adam's fault and it's our fault in Adam, right? We are all descended from Adam and Eve. We're all sinners. And the curse affected all of creation. All creation groans. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, animals are cursed to die. The ground is cursed with thorns and thistles. Um, everything that man had dominion over was affected as a result of the fall. And that's, like I say, in really stark contrast to how the world views death, right? It sees death as a mechanism, as a good thing, as a natural thing to get all these different organisms that we have um, today. Death is necessary for evolution to occur. 
So there's really only two basic viewpoints in this world as to when death entered. It either was a result of Adam's sin or it came before um, Adam even came into existence. And that's what we really need to think about as Christians. Because if God, there are some Christians that will say, well, I think God used evolution over millions of years. And I'm like, well, then you have to say that God thinks death is very good. Because when he's done with creation, what does he say? It's very good. But if God used millions of years of death and suffering and disease and bloodshed to bring about mankind and every other living thing, then he thinks what he did was very good, that that's okay. Where's that in scripture, right? Nowhere is death ever viewed as a good, much less a very good thing. Now, when we die, we get to go to heaven, and that's a good outcome. But the way to get there is not good, right? It's not a good or a very good thing. Um, Scripture talks about death having a sting, right? It is the last enemy to be destroyed. Um, It's not a good, much less a very good thing. And the problem with God viewing death is very good. What does that say about God? I mean, it really impugns his nature and character because he is good, he is loving, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is, he is a redeemer. I mean, how could he use such a mechanism to bring, I mean, trial and error mechanism to bring about mankind and every other living thing? And also, instead of death being the punishment for sin, we have death before sin. And like I said, that's a major, major problem um, because then what's the punishment for sin? If you've already got death, I don't know. (laughs) Um, That's a major, major problem. And most Christians that I've talked to that believe in evolution in millions of years really can't answer that question very well. They struggle with it. They don't know because it's totally contrary to what the Bible says, right? And so when you you go contrary to that, it's hard to have a really good answer um, for that question because because it's clear from Scripture that death is the punishment for sin. And so we, we need to think about this. If we, if we try to synthesize or try to push evolution in millions of years into the Bible, what does that say about God, right? And what does that say about the death and sin issue? Is death really the punishment for sin or is it not? And if it's not the punishment for sin, then why did Jesus need to die, right? Why did he need to die a physical death? Why did he need to resurrect? What is he redeeming us from if the punishment for sin is not death? And so it goes straight to the gospel, and that's why this is an important issue. So, um, like I say, a lot of people have grown up believing, you know, in Adam and Eve, and everything's very good, and they've heard that from Genesis, but then they also want to believe in evolution over millions of years. They want to try to put the two together, and like I say, it's, it's a huge problem. This is one of the biggest problems I see, and for me personally, it was a real eureka moment. Like, oh, I never thought about that before. Yeah, that's a major problem, because if you have death before sin, then what's the punishment for sin? And if God used death, then what kind of God is that? Not a very good God. I mean, and so it's not very good as he said it was. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really an issue. And it really comes to that issue when you talk about why is there suffering and pain and death in this world. Because starting with the Bible, beginning with the history in Genesis, we have a very good answer to that question, right? Um, because we see death as a punishment for sin. Um, we see that death and sin are linked, right? For the wages of sin is death. It's not something natural, right? It's not something that's happened over millions of years of evolution of trial and error and disease and suffering. Um, It's not a God that created and used death and suffering to bring about man, but rather an original, perfect, very good world that God made um, by God's spoken command that was marred by man's disobedience. Death and disease and suffering are man's fault. They're not God's. And so there's a very real simple answer to the question of why there's death and suffering in this world when we start with that history in Genesis. 
And I and for me that answer has been the answer to that question is really really important um, because for many many years my mother died unexpectedly from breast cancer when I was 23 years old, and I really struggled with that. Really really struggled with that at that time. Um, I loved her very much. She was my best friend. We had a really great relationship, and it was it was hard. It was hard for me to handle that. And um, but understanding this issue so much better, beginning with Genesis years after her death really helped bring a peace to me about that. It was like, okay. I mean, it's still painful. I still miss my mom. But at the same time, I'm like, I understand now. I, I get why these things happen. And, um, and it is man's fault. It is because of man's sin. Um, but God is a gracious, loving redeemer. My mom was a Christian. So I know I'm going to see her again someday. And that's the hope I have um, in Jesus Christ um, in that. So that's something we look forward to. So we have answers. You know, the rest of the world, so many times when you watch the news in the wake of a tragedy, right, they're just scratching their heads. They don't know how to give a good answer to that. We've got the answers, and we've got the hope. (laughs) They don't have the answers, and they don't have the hope that we do in Jesus Christ. So about 1,500 years after corruption, we arrive at catastrophe. And in one simple verse, the Bible really sums up um, the tragic and horrible effects of sin. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what did God do? He decided to destroy every air-breathing, land-dwelling animal and human except for Noah and his family and representatives of those animals on the ark. Now, how many of you have seen a picture of an ark that looked like this? Okay, yeah. It's very common. The problem is it's not very realistic, okay? We call these fairy tale arcs or bathtub arcs um, because they kind of look like an overloaded bathtub. The only thing that's realistic about that picture is that, is that elephant right there, okay? Because as soon as that wave hits, it's gone, okay? That would never survive a year-long catastrophic flood. Um, and so let's talk about some facts regarding the ark. They give us a better picture of what it looked like. So you can go see one now. It's been built, uh, which is really cool. It's not just looking at a picture of it. It was built to biblical dimension. And so we used um, the dimensions given in Scripture, which are in cubits. And so we converted cubits to inches because a cubit is the length from your elbow, a man's elbow, to the t- tip of his middle finger. Now, obviously, that varies depending on the man. Um, but we use 20.4 inches, which is what's called the Hebrew long cubit. That was typically used for a lot of um, ancient building, and so we use that. And so you end up with an arc that's 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. It's big, okay? One and a half football fields long. It has the volume of approximately 483 semi-trailers, okay? And when you go to the arc, what's amazing to me... <laughs> Thousands of people can be there, and it looks like no one's there. Because <laughs> they all fit really well on the ark, okay? I mean, it's huge. I mean, it can just absorb. I don't know how to say this, but it just absorbs people, okay? Um, it's just big. It's the largest freestanding timber frame structure in the world, okay? It's massive. No question about how Noah got all those animals on the ark, okay? Plenty of room. Um, when you show it like it's supposed to be showed. So this is a much more realistic um, interpretation of it and very similar to the one that we actually built in Williamstown. And research has even been conducted by secular scientists, Korean secular scientists, that actually so showed that the structural safety, the overturning stability, and the sea-keeping quality of the ark 
were actually supreme. Um, well, of course they are, because God designed it, right? He knew the exact dimensions that needed to be used. So people wouldn't get seasick, right? So it doesn't topple over, um, and so it stays, it stays together. Now, people ask me, this was one thing we had to answer when we were doing Ark Encounter, was how many animals were on the Ark, right? And we wanted to give a very realistic but still worst-case scenario, kind of, (laughs) a realistic worst-case scenario um, of how many animals were on the ark. And so I was involved in a lot of, and some of the research with that and in coordinating the scientists to look at that. So what we did was we took every living animal plus all of those that we know from the fossil record and classified them into their kinds to determine how many animals were on the ark. So Hello, big undertaking. <laughs> Took years um, to do that. We started several years before we even started building the ark um, so that we could have that information ready. So there's about 550 mammal kinds. This includes both living and extinct. Um, 285 bird kinds, 320 reptiles, 248 amphibians. Because remember, we're only taking air-breathing land-dwelling animals, not the fish. And so total, you end up with about 1,400 kinds or approximately 7,000 animals. No, it didn't have to take... Two of every species, right? The Bible says kind. That's the family level. That's two notches up from species. So totally um, plausible. And what I, one of the things I love at the ark, one of my favorite exhibits, is actually how they took care of all these animals on the ark. Because you got eight people and 7,000 animals. Um, but remember, it's a survival cruise, not a leisure cruise, okay? And um, so keep that in mind. But I like how they talk about how they got water, how they fed them, how they got rid of all the, um, you know, excrement. <laughs> um, These are real things that you would have to deal with, right, with animals on the ark. And so I love that because, I mean, man is intelligent. And think about this. This is is, about 4,000 years ago. So Noah didn't have nearly as many mutations as you and I do um, in our DNA. And he lived, he was almost, you know, he was like 500 years old when he started building the ark. So lots of experience, right? Lots of time to be able to figure these things out and be able to do this. Um, but the one question, and so he had to take two, two of some, seven pairs of others. So with that, that's how you get the 7,000, um, almost 7,000 number. But the biggest question I get, again, is were dinosaurs on the ark? And my answer is, of course they were, because it says of every living thing of all flesh. It doesn't say except dinosaurs. Um, it says animals after their kind will come to you to keep them alive. Now, People say, but there's not enough room on the ark for the dinosaurs. I say, first of all, you need to realize that unlike Jurassic Park, the average size of a dinosaur is about a sheep or a cow, okay? So I know that big T-Rex on Jurassic Park is really cool, but it's probably a large adult, okay? Noah's not going to take that on the ark, first of all. Um, And most of them, on average, okay, are sheep or cow size. He probably would have taken young dinosaurs because the whole point is to reproduce after the flood, right? You're not going to take, no offense, but you're probably not going to take really old dinosaurs. You want the ones that have the most reproductive life so they can still continue after the flood. Noah was not doing this, okay? He wasn't trying to shove this gigantic sauropod onto the ark. He was taking the little ones, okay? Um, Most dinosaur eggs are no bigger than a football, okay? So they start out little, just like everything else, and it's not a problem. Um, Some people wonder what dinosaurs like T. rex would have eaten, since we know them to be carnivorous today. Um, He could have taken dried meat. 
Or it's possible they could have survived on a vegetarian diet for a period of time. Remember, this is survival, not leisure, okay? Um, and so some animals can do that. Even today, there are um, cats, some cats that refuse to eat meat. So they, they can do this. Again, this is about surviving. There's only about 60 to 90 dinosaur kinds total, so he only had to take, like, less than 200. Uh, so it really wasn't that many that he had to take. Now, um, obviously, not everything made it. And just so you know, we don't just dig up dinosaur fossils. We dig up fossils of other animals, too. <laughs> uh, we tend to get into this mindset of just dinosaurs because they're no longer around, and that's what we hear about the most. But um, we find fossil remains of all kinds of animals we no longer have around. But we do find the dinosaurs as well. Now, some people say, okay, if they survived the flood, why aren't they here today? Well, I could ask that question of a lot of animals, not just the dinosaurs. There's other ones that have went extinct, too. Why aren't they here anymore, you know? And it's a good question. Um, but animals go extinct for a number of reasons. Um, weather, okay, um, food issues, uh, you know, all kinds of things may have affected them after the flood. We don't know the exact reason the dinosaurs became extinct. Personally, if T-Rex was in my backyard, I'd want them gone. Um, so they may have been hunted to extinction. We just don't know. The only thing we do know for sure is they're not here anymore. <laughs> um, they have died, as far as we know. Um, and um, so, so they were there. They've just become extinct, like many other animals, since the flood. So I want to move on to the reality of the flood itself, because some people believe that the flood was just like in a local area, and it wasn't all over the world. And I'm like, what does scripture say? It says, all the high hills under the whole have been recovered. 15 cubits upward, that's about 23 feet, um, and the mountains were covered. Okay, all, right, all the high hills. This is not a possibility then, okay? Um, and it's just kind of a comic look at this, but it's not a local flood, right? If it's going to cover all the high hills, okay, water seeks its own level. It's not going to go so far and go, ooh, I'm going to stop here, okay? Um, it's not going to do that, okay? So how can it be 23 feet above all the high hills and be local? That's not plausible, okay? It's not possible, and God uses very definitive language here, all. I mean, and he uses it over and over again, all, 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 only. To, and even in Matthew, right, and took them, for as in the days were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, okay? It doesn't say some of them were left or some of them that moved over here. And my thing is, if it was a local flood, why didn't God tell Noah just to move over here where the flood wasn't going to be? I mean, seriously, why build a gigantic ark, put these animals on, when he could have just went boop, over here where the flood wasn't, okay? It just doesn't make any sense, right? And you have to think about those things. Um, so, and today, what do we find? Billions of dead things, buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth, right? That's what you find everywhere, um, that's exactly what you would expect to see as a result of a global catastrophic flood. So again, science confirms the Bible. Now, a lot of people think it takes millions of years for fossils to form because that's what we've been told. Um, but does it really? I mean, and so they think, well, this fish died and it flowed to the bottom of the ocean and slowly over time, layers built up around it, or it could have been an animal on land, you know, whatever. But is that really realistic? I mean, what happens when the fish dies in your aquarium, okay? Um, and things don't typically settle to the bottom and get buried slowly over time, right? They get eaten, they get torn apart, um, they get degraded. Um, it certainly does not become fossilized. And so actually really special conditions are required for fossilization. So here's this fish. It's about to have its lunch, okay? And it's in progress when, boom, Noah's flood happens, okay? So lots of sediments moving. It gets buried and it gets surrounded by the dirt, okay? And the mud and all of those things. 
It's not exposed to the elements. It can't be ripped apart or scavenged or eaten because it's buried so deeply. And so over time, that's going to turn into a fossil. And we actually have that fossil at the Creation Museum of a fish eating another fish. If you're going to preserve it like this, it's got to be fast. Hey, whatever you're doing, because that's not going to preserve it otherwise. Um, this is another one of my favorites. This is an ichthyosaur, which is an extinct sea creature. Now, we don't have this fossil at the museum. I wish we did, but um, it's been fossilized giving birth. Right? Fast. Okay, whatever happened, it was fast in order to preserve things like this. So, again, the Bible states there was a catastrophic global flood, and only Noah and his family and the animals on the ark were saved. And science confirms that reality of a global flood. And again, I'm just giving you some of the details, okay? On so many of these things, I'm like, oh, I wish I could give more. But um, there's not enough time for that. But we have a lot of great resources that can help you with that. So about 150, 200 years after the flood, we come to the next sea, at least in Genesis, and that is confusion. So God had told Noah and his family, after they got off the ark, to multiply and fill the earth, okay? So very similar to what he told Adam and Eve. But they decided they didn't want to do that. And so they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God commanded Noah and his sons to multiply and fill the earth. They just decided to stay together and build a tower. Again, 100 years or so after the flood. And, um, and so we don't know exactly what the Tower of Babel looked like, but it may have looked something like this. And the reason we say that is because we find towers like this all over the world. How is it that people in all these different cultures built the exact same thing? they were all together at one time building the exact same thing, okay? And they took that knowledge with them when they scattered, and they built it in other places. So God punished the rebellion. This was not what he said to do. And so there, um, therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So they got scattered according to language groups and um, within families. And so they go out, and people with different languages end up in different locations, there's no global travel. There's no Google app to translate, okay, what somebody else is saying. So they just marry within those groups. So people that went up to Europe, they marry within those groups. People that went down to Australia, they marry in those groups. People that are in Africa, they marry in those groups. And whatever DNA they took with them that had those, whatever characteristics it had, became dominant. It's like tiny little gene pools all over the place. And they're just marrying within those groups. And so you just get certain characteristics becoming dominant as a result of that. Lighter skin in Europe, darker skin in Africa, almond-shaped eyes in Europe. Or, I'm sorry, in Asia. So you just get variations, basically, on the same traits that Adam and Eve had. They just become more dominant and predominant because they're marrying within those little tiny groups. Now, today, we're global, right? We've got Google apps that can translate foreign languages. People can learn another language. So... We're starting to actually come back to more probably what we looked like at Babel. Uh, the most predominant skin shade in the world is metal brown. Um, and it's continuing to become more so that way because we're mixing again. <laughs> Essentially, we're not one tiny little gene or these tiny little gene pools. We're this global gene pool now. Okay, so we're getting that mixing, so to speak, again of all these different people. Now, these are not different races of people. You commonly hear that. But there's no basis in scripture. We are one race descended from Adam and Eve. We're the human race. We are different ethnicities, different people groups is what we call them in Answers in Genesis. But we are not different races of people. There's no such thing. Um, so whenever you get to that part where it spills out, you know, you're filling out the form and it says, what race are you? I want to say uh, Adam's race, just like everyone else in the world, okay? Um, well, you want to know what ethnicity I am, which is something different, okay? 
Um, and so it's just, again, it's just a variation on the same original recipe, so to speak, um, that Adam and Eve had. Nobody's got purple skin unless they do it to themselves. Um, nobody's got square eyes, right? Nobody's got those things because it's just variations on what Adam and Eve had. So what did Adam and Eve look like? What shade? I talked about this a little bit earlier, not color, because we all are brown. I hate to break this to you, but everybody is brown, okay? We're just different shades of brown, right? Some are lighter, some are darker. I'm not white, okay? This is white, okay? This is not me. Um, I am a dark, I'm darker than that. So everybody is the same. So, you know, the, the children's song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, right? Red, yellow, black, and white actually brown, 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 and brown. Um, we're all just not as much fun to sing. I get it. But think about it. Skin shade separates people a lot. And we need people to understand it shouldn't. Um, because we're just different, all different shades of that same brown. Probably Adam and Eve were somewhere in between. And as a geneticist, I say that because that gives them a lot of genetic variation that they need to produce all the different skin shades we see today. So they would have had some genes for lots of skin pigment called melanin, um, some genes for not a lot of skin pigment, um, and so the mixture gives you somewhere in between. It's kind of like if you take white milk and you start pouring chocolate syrup into it, and the more you pour in, the darker it gets. It's kind of like that idea. Um, so if you have a mixture of genes, you get somewhere in between, and so their children could have exhibited, if they had that kind of genetic variation, their children could have been either very dark, very light, most would have been in between. Um, on that range, so to speak. And it's important because a lot of children's books show Adam and Eve like this, and it is one of my biggest pet peeves. Um, And I won't allow those books to be sold at the Creation Museum or the Ark because I'm like, no, it's not accurate. Because how can someone who doesn't look like that look at that and think, oh, that's where I came from? They can't. That would be really, really hard. Because if they look like that, everyone would look like that. And they don't. If they were the opposite, if they were really dark, everyone would look like that. But they don't, right? And so they lack the genetic variation needed to give you all the different skin shades that we have today. And they were probably in between, and that's why we get what we get today. Now, we can see this even in modern times, okay? You don't have to. This isn't just hypothetical. It's real. So this couple right here, they're both middle brown. Those are fraternal twins, now, they call them black-white twins, which technically isn't accurate, but okay. They're brown-brown twins. Um, one's light brown, one's really dark brown. So their parents are kind of like Adam and Eve in the sense of being somewhere in the middle. Um, this is a picture of these twins today. They're twins, okay? They're not identical twins, but they're fraternal twin. Um, and so one got the genes for the very dark color, and one got the genes for the very light color, the light shade. And so that's what you can get. Um, and even scientists say, you know, the genes that explain the differences like on the outside, like hair color, skin shade, all of those, um, between populations only represent a tiny part of our genome confirming once again that the concept of race from a genetic standpoint has been abolished. Um, if you compare my DNA to yours, we're only 0.1% different. Okay, that's it. Um, if you want to talk about things that are responsible for ethnic differences, like skin shade, we're 0.01% different. Um, it's very, very tiny. So we are all one race um, come from Adam and Eve. So, uh, and that's important. It really is to understand that we're one race. It's more than just saying it because that's what Genesis says, because it's essential to the gospel. Because for if by the one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, amounted to many, right? Who did Jesus die for? 
Adam's race and Adam's race alone. That's it. There can't be other races of people. Um, it has to only be from him so that the, we can preach the gospel freely to all nations because Christ died for sinners regardless of their ethnicity. All right, so we want to turn our attention now to these last three C's. And we're not going to spend as much time, but I want to help you understand how the, those first four C's are really important for those last three C's, and they provide the foundation for that. So we want to start with Christ, and we want to start specifically with the birth of Christ. And in Matthew and Luke, we can read through the genealogies of Christ um, through Mary and Joseph's line. And Mary's line is actually traced all the way back to Adam, okay, which is the blue line. And that's significant, right? We talked about that earlier um, because Eve was promised that she would be, have a seed, right, that would come and crush Satan's head. Um, Jesus is that promised seed. He is the fulfillment 4,000 years later of that promise and that prophecy given in Genesis 3.15. And it also illustrates the importance of believing that Adam and Eve were real people because this is an increasing problem or an increasing question that Christians have, they'll say, well, maybe Adam and Eve are just metaphors or allegories or myth, and they didn't really exist because they believe in evolution. They believe we evolved from some sort of ape-like ancestor. What's the problem with that? If Adam's a metaphor, then where does that leave Jesus? Because metaphors don't have children, right? And so it destroys that historical line through which Jesus came if Adam is not a real person, um, and so we have to think about that. If Adam's not real, Jesus isn't the promised seed. Because we know it had to be Adam's descendant. It had to be Eve's seed that would come. And, that's, and we see that clearly traced out in Scripture. Um, but if he's not real, then none of his descendants can be real, including Jesus Christ. And that's why this issue matters. So Genesis is foundational to the birth of Jesus Christ. And next we want to move to the cross. Genesis is foundational. It's the reason... We needed the cross, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins without that. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal, right? A secondary purpose was to provide clothes for them, but the primary purpose was, uh, of an animal being killed was to provide a blood sacrifice for sin, to atone for their sin and point to the necessity of Jesus Christ. But the animal sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament, all they did was cover sin. We're not related to the animals, so they can never take sin away. Jesus is the only way, and he would pay the price for our sins because he was human, and he was perfect. He was without sin, and he demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, why did Jesus need to do this? It goes back to Genesis. For by the one man's offense, many died. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. We need that first Adam to understand the purpose of the death, that Jesus paid the price for our sins, and the resurrection, right? He defeated us, so can we, if we receive him as our Savior. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't believe Adam and Eve are real people, or you don't believe Genesis presents true history, that you cannot be a Christian. But what I'm saying is that you're being inconsistent in your beliefs about Scripture. And if you do away with the first Adam then why do you need the second one? Why do you need the last one? Um, they are related. To be consistent, either both are true or neither are true. Um, that's just what it comes down to. And we have to, and we have to think about that um, because we need to be consistent um, as Christians and we need to believe the Bible from the first verse to the last verse. Last verse. 
And of course, because Christ resurrected, we look forward then to his return in the consummation, when we'll see a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth has passed away and there was no more sea. And when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away and there shall be no more curse. And it's going to be different, right? There's going to be a restoration of all things. And so what is it going to be restored to? Like it was, right? And the very good, perfect, original creation. And think about this. Because the people that want to say, well, God used evolution over millions of years, right? If he used all this death and suffering and disease to bring about all living things, if that was part of his very good, perfect, original creation, and we know that in the consummation, it's a restoration of what it was like in the beginning, um, we've got a problem, right? Because we know there's going to be no pain or death or crying or sorrow. But yet, if God used evolution over millions of years, there was a lot of it. So in order for it to be a restoration, right, it has to be that way. If that's the way it's going to be in the future, it has to have been that way at the very beginning too. And that's an important thing we need to understand. So in order to be consistent when it comes to Scripture, we have to take Genesis as a literal historical account um, or we undermine the authority of the truthfulness of the remainder of Scripture because Genesis is so foundational. So I hope that through this presentation I've given you some um, answers to some common questions and objections that people have relating to Genesis and shown you the importance of the history in Genesis, those first four C's to the last three C's. And it's so important and the science confirms it, too. I should say that, because I think that's really important. Um, that what we observe in the present it confirms what we know about the past from God's word. And it's so important to be equipped to give those answers. Um, because people will say the Bible can't be trusted in the scientific age. And they think of evolution and eight men and no global flood. And, well, what can the church do about this? And, yeah, we have to trust in Jesus. That's important. But if the Bible isn't true, why should you trust in Jesus? Right? If that first part of the Bible wasn't true, which is the very foundation of the gospel, why should you believe any of the rest of it? Right? What good does it do if part of the Bible isn't true? Maybe none of it's true. And that's what happens, and that's what we need to understand. Um, and the, the atheists get this. We need to understand that, too. Unbelievers get this. This is from a Christmas campaign, or I should say anti-Christmas campaign, from the American atheists. They said, no Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. It also means that the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It is completely unreliable because it all begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fallen man means no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. You know it. <laughs> They're right. They say, if Genesis isn't true, Christians, why should you believe any of the rest of it? It's the foundation. If you don't have Adam and Eve and you don't have sin and you don't have a fall, then why do you need a Savior? What do you need to be redeemed from? Mm-hmm. Yep, you're right. And that's the problem, and that's why we need to be consistent on this. Um, and, and we need to understand this as well, because if we don't hold to the truthfulness and authority of those first four seeds, Sorry, I can't see my slide. Then it's only a matter of time until everything that's built on that falls too. And I have seen this. I have seen. I have been at Answers in Genesis for 11 years now. And I have watched Christians who said, oh, I think billions of years is okay. Oh, I think evolution is okay. Oh, well, no, then Adam and Eve couldn't have existed. And it's all downhill from there. It becomes a slippery slope. I have seen people that call themselves Christians. I'm not sure I believe that. Say, well, because Adam and Eve aren't real... Um, then Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. He just came to be a good example for us on how to live our lives. I've seen it, and that is not the gospel. <laughs> that is a false gospel. 
Um, and that is a major, major problem, and that's what's happening. Um, and we need to realize that, that this really does matter. It is a gospel issue. And we need to start with the Bible as our thinking in every area, because only then can we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And, and we can do that. <laughs> it doesn't take a PhD in anything to do this, trust me, okay? Um, you do have to know what the Bible says. Um, it's good to have answers to some questions and then tell people where to get more information. Because that's what I do. Um, and so and so we need to be equipped to do that. I know many of you have children and many of you have grandchildren. These are important issues. They're being bombarded with it every single day. Um, when I watch TV, it's not just the kids' shows. I see it in commercials for cruise lines and car dealerships. And, I mean, it's all over the place. It's just indoctrinating kids with these beliefs, and we need to combat that. So I talked about our newsletter and our magazine out there, which has lots of great information for you. I know some of you are taking advantage of the You Choose combination. Um, we have the Seven Seas of History DVD, so it kind of goes through the Seven Seas like I went through today. It's not by me, but another one of our speakers that does a talk um, kind of similar to this. We have so many resources for children, like A is for Adam, okay, teaching them about creation um, and the fall. The Bible explains dinosaurs, okay? A great one for kids is dinosaurs, Genesis, and the Gospels. Dinosaurs are used by far more than anything else to indoctrinate children in the idea that the Bible is not true and that millions of years and evolution is true. So equip them. D is for dinosaur. Great for maybe, um, you know, toddlers up to kindergartners. Um, Dragons, legends and lore of dinosaurs. So learning about what they call dragons, which are probably really references to dinosaurs throughout time. Um, N is for Noah. Again, I'm kind of going through the seven seas here, if you haven't noticed, up to catastrophe. Um, We have lots of great resources on that. This is a great way to share the gospel, because just like Noah had one door in the ark, There's only one door to heaven, right? And that's through Jesus Christ. He is the door. Um, We have a great DVD on that, too, talking more about Noah's flood. Um, The race issue, understanding that better. One race, one blood. The Tower of Babel. I have a DVD um, that I did talking about kids' most asked questions. So I talk about dinosaurs. I talk about aliens. I talk about the issue of race um, and several other things, the age of the earth there. We have a curriculum uh, for ages 7 through 11 um, on this. It's like like about 30-some lessons that take them through the seven seas and um, really end the science and help explain that to kids. Uh, I also have several DVDs out there because I'm a geneticist and a cellular biologist, and I love that stuff. Um, So I really try to make the information that I have very accessible to everybody. That's really important to me. And so I'm a teacher. I always have been, always will be. So I want people to understand this. So we have some great information out there on that. We have a VBS that we offer every year. This year is called Operation Arctic, exploring the coolest book on the planet, which is the Bible, obviously. Um, so we offer that every year. We also have a Bible curriculum, which is for um, toddlers up through adults. Go see the Bible chronologically. We're about to re-release it in four years. Um, and so it's really a great study. I've used it in my own church, and I absolutely love it, along with our VBS. They're phenomenal products. We have a World Religions Conference coming up at the end of July if you're interested in learning about different religions and how Christianity is unique. Um, I encourage you to attend that conference. I talked about the Women's Conference. Answersforwomen.org is where to get the information on that. Um, And visit the ark, okay? It's amazing. I think it's very faith-affirming, right? Because you can see this. It's no longer just a picture, right? I mean, you can actually see this. It hasn't been built for thousands of years, right? And now we have um, the real thing, so to speak, here. So... That's all I have, and I'm going to hand it over to Karen. Thanks.